Well, this morning, if I gave a title to this message, it would be Why It Matters That Jesus Became One of Us. And I do think, I could be wrong, but I think that many of us, when we think about Jesus, feel a kind of distance or we think, I have to keep Jesus at at arm's length. He's he's too different or he's too holy, he's too perfect or, or I struggle with things that he wouldn't understand or I live in a real world with real problems and real real temptations, and Jesus is up there in heaven somewhere. But this kind of thinking is destroyed by the message of this passage. Jesus became one of us. And that message, if you understand it and believe it, and grasp onto it with all of your heart could revolutionize your relationship with Jesus. God did not just throw a book at us and say, you guys better keep this or else. And he does not look at us and say, you know, you guys are such losers with all your weaknesses and your sin and your failure. No, he stooped down to our level. He sent Jesus to identify with us, to understand us. In this passage, it says to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and our trials and our suffering and temptations. He came, Jesus came to be our high priest. That means one who represents us to God. He's our representative. He stands in our place. He represents us to God the Father. And he could only represent us to God if he was someone like us in all things. And you know, if you're going to relate to a child, you, you have to get into their world, and, and that's not always, always easy. Uh, you know, I, I loved my kids, um, but I, I never loved board games that much. And uh, actually, I was kind of, kind of relieved when my kids no longer wanted to play Candyland, Shoots and Ladders, Monopoly, and, you know, all the others. But, you know, I, I played a lot of board games in those days just to step into their, into their world. You, you, you do things with your kids to, to come down to, to, to their level and enter, enter where they are at. Jesus became like us. He became a man. He became one of us. He came to our level, not in our sin, not in our sinfulness, but in every other way he became just like us. There is not one of us that can ever say, Jesus doesn't know, he doesn't care, he doesn't understand. No one can ever say, he hasn't suffered like me. He knows you and he, and he sympathizes with you. He knows your trials. He knows your suffering. He knows your temptations. He knows what you struggle with. He knows your weaknesses today. He knows how it feels to live your life. He came as, as a baby. He grew up. He experienced all the things that normal human beings do going through child, childhood, teenage years, adulthood, working as a carpenter, all of these things. And it's that total identification with us that makes him perfectly fit to be our Savior, to atone for our sins, to free us from our fears, and to help us overcome our temptations. Now, this passage 
answers a, a really big question. And I want you to stay with me on this. Why did God come to us looking like a regular human being? You know, often in paintings of Jesus, there's a halo drawn about his head, and that's just completely false. You know, when people saw Jesus, they saw nothing above his head. They saw nothing powerful or superhuman about him. He wasn't shining or glowing or semi-transparent, except perhaps on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he did not look superhuman in any way. He looks looked just like us, and he was just like us in the fact that he was fully man. And this was a stumbling block to the Jews, and it is to many people today. Many people say they would believe in God if, if God would only put himself on display in some brilliant or spectacular way, you know, kind of like fireworks on the 4th of July. And the Jews had a similar problem with Jesus. Their problem was, why does Jesus look less impressive than the angels? You know, if Jesus, if this is God, if this is the God-man coming to earth, why does he look just so human? Why, why isn't he as impressive, at least as an angel? Why did he come as a human being instead of an angel? And that is why the author of Hebrews has to argue with these Jewish believers that Jesus is superior to the angels. And he says that Jesus came as a human being, not as an angel, not as some super impressive, spectacular, obviously supernatural human being, but, or supernatural being, because Jesus came to save people like us, not angels. Jesus looks like one of us because he came to save people like us. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In other words, he came to help people. And to help people, he had to become one of us. And that's verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So he did not just look like a normal human being. He experienced life just as we experienced it. And we'll get into this a little bit more, but it was all so that he could be a perfect savior and high priest for us. But just think about this for a moment. He experienced life just as you experience it. He experienced life just as we experience it. He, he, he knows in a very full sense exactly what it is like to be you. He understands completely every thought, every fear, every feeling that you have at any time, day or night. He felt what it is like to wake up in the morning. He felt what it is like to be tired. He felt the fluctuations of emotions and energy and all the human hungers and desires and needs that you and I experience. He experienced great joy. 
He also knew what it was like to feel lonely or rejected, frustrated, or disappointed. I fully believe that he knows how you feel when you have a huge pile of laundry in front of you or an overwhelming task facing you at work. He came as a man to fully identify with us in our flesh and blood. And it's just just an amazing thought to think about what you're feeling, what you're going through in life, and to think that Jesus fully understands and sympathizes with you. You, you, you can't think of a, of a frame of mind or, a, or a, 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 a bodily feeling or an emotional feeling that Jesus can't understand and identify with. And that connects him to you like a brother. And that's what this passage in Hebrews teaches, that, that he came to us to be, to, be, to be like a brother or to be a brother to us. And he, he understands us as, and is sympathetic to us or he's bonded to us like a brother. He has that special interest in us like a brother. And he has that special affection toward us as a brother. This, this really connects with me because I'm blessed with a really good brother. I have a twin brother named Paul. Uh, we grew up, obviously, we grew up in the same home. We shared the same bedroom. Uh, we went to the same school. And as twins, we, we, we just, like, experienced life together. And we both, uh, we both love the Lord. We both pastor churches. And uh, when, he, when he goes through something... Uh, I, I feel that with him, like a brother, because I am his brother. And in the same way, Jesus feels that way with us. He, he identifies that way with us. He, ha- he has that affection of a brother toward us. He has that sympathy of a brother toward us. So he became like us in all ways, but perhaps most profoundly, he became like us in our suffering. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. And that, just stop and think about that phrase, okay? It was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom, for Jesus, and by whom, by Jesus, all things exist. It was fitting for this Jesus in bringing many sons to glory should make, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Everything in the universe that exists now or ever has existed was made by him and exists for him. Every galaxy, every star, every person, every angel. Yet in order to bring us to glory, he came and lived as our brother. And he did not live an insulated, protected life free from pain. He felt the full force of sorrow and suffering and disappointment. And this is what makes him a perfect savior for us. His suffering didn't make him perfect in the sense of making him holy. He was sinless and holy. But his suffering made him perfectly suitable, fully qualified to be our high priest and our savior. And if he had not suffered, he would have been very different from us because we suffer. But by suffering, he became our perfect high priest, our perfect Savior. 
John Piper said, one great aim of God in salvation is that he have a great unified family of children with Jesus Christ being essentially different from and yet deeply united to his other human brothers and sisters. But if all the brothers and sisters in a family have experienced suffering except one, that unity is jeopardized. And so for the sake of a common spirit of unity and sympathy and camaraderie, even in suffering, Christ takes on human nature and leads many sons to glory through suffering and death. And his suffering, of course, culminated at the cross. It wasn't He didn't suffer only at the cross, but his suffering culminated at the cross. And it was through his suffering death at the cross that provided the means for us to become sons of God alongside him as our elder brother. Sam Storms put it this way, if Jesus was going to save us and reconcile us to God, He had to live the life we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die. That is why he had to become human. Only a human being can live the sinless life that other humans failed to live. Only a human can die in the place of other human beings, the death they justly deserve to die. An angel could not do this for us. No animal in creation could do this for us. We are humans, and only one who is human himself can serve as our substitute and succeed where we failed and discharge the debt that we owed. Now, our passage this morning goes on to emphasize a couple of really big or huge benefits that flow to us through Jesus being made just like us. And verse 14 says, he shared in flesh and blood. In other words, he became human, very human, flesh and blood, just like you have, just like I have. He shared in flesh and blood so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So this verse tells us that Jesus became like us, flesh and blood, to defeat the devil and to release us from fear of death. The fear of death is one of the devil's most powerful footholds. It is a way, it is a way, it's not the only way, but it is a way that he holds people, that holds us in his power. He is able to terrorize us with the thought of condemnation for our sins. He is able to terrorize us with the fear of judgment. He is able to terrorize us with the thought of being ashamed to stand before God. He is able to stir up fears about the uncertainty of life after death with fears that arise from lack of assurance of our acceptance before a holy and righteous God. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed... To men to die once, and after that comes judgment. And this sense of impending judgment brings fear or terror, the fear of having to give an account before God. 
Remember in a message years ago, uh, Dawson Trotman, the founder of The Navigator, says there's not a man who's ever lived that isn't aware that he must stand and face judgment before God after he dies. Now, this verse says that many people live with a fear of death in the back of their minds all the time. Uh, I do also know that some boast that death is just merely a complete end of consciousness and there is no God to fear. There's no God to whom they are accountable. And they say, essentially, just like Paul quoted, let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Um, I believe that many people cope with death by simply refusing to talk about it or to think about it, uh, or they brace themselves for death with a kind of uh, unemotional stoicism. I personally believe these are ways of coping with underlying fears of death. They are ways of suppressing fear, not dealing with it. They're ways of suppressing fear by suppressing the truth that they intuitively know that we are accountable to our Creator and will answer to God after we die. And verse 15 says, that Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. All fear is a kind of slavery. And we are only free when we are living completely without fear and without anxiety. And that's, that's really only, you're really only experiencing real life and life to the full. I mean, there's no way to experience the abundant life that Jesus promised and living with any kind of fear or anxiety. Just can't go together. And fear of death particularly can can be that dark cloud. It can be a dark cloud hanging over us, sapping our joy and optimism and hope. And we might not even be realizing it. There's just this fear in the back of our mind and our heart that we're, that, we're, that we're thinking about how life ends and when it will end and what about that and what happens. And this fear of death can, can be like a cloud hanging over us that just suppresses the full buoyancy, the full joy that God wants us to have. But I think here in this verse, very clearly, we, we, see, the, we see the incredible pity and compassion that Jesus has for us in wanting to free us from our fears. What else would motivate him? I mean, if, if I see, if I see a, 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 my, one of my grandkids or if I see anybody that's, that's just obviously in, in a state of fear or anxiety, I, mean, I, I, I want to free him from that. I, I, don't, I don't want them to suffer that. You know, I want them to be freed from that. And you, you do the same with your kids. You don't, if your kids are afraid at night or, or afraid of the dark or whatever, I mean, you want to go console them and comfort them and relieve them of that fear. Fear is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing, a terrible way to live. And, and in such mercy and pity and love and kindness and compassion for us, Jesus wanted to free us from our, our sins. So, so it says that Jesus came to deliver all those who... Th- who through fear of death were subject to this lifelong slave, slavery. What, I mean, what a, what a Savior we have that, that cares about our fears and anxieties. And He came to free us from them, from all fears, but particularly this, free, this fear of death. He doesn't want you to be afraid of death. He wants, you to, get, he wants to get rid of that 
kind of slavery in your life and heart and mind. So he saw people like us suffering under the tyranny of Satan, suffering under a fear of death and dying, and he came on a mission out of great compassion that cost him everything to deliver us from the slavery of that fear. And it says that he did that through his own death. In other words, that happened ultimately at the cross. Uh, under the power of Satan, we were, we were captive and in bondage to our sins. And, and so Satan had the power over us to, to accuse us for our sins, to condemn us for our sin, and to, and to threaten us. And death... Death for all under Satan and in his power being held in his captivity under his tyranny, death for all was just an open door to judgment and hell. But Christ came to destroy these terrible and fearful realities through his death for those who trust him. And the only reason, the only real reason to fear death is unforgiven sin and the thought of standing before God in that unforgiven state to face judgment and to face just punishment for our sins. I mean, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. I mean, sin has a wage. It, has a, it creates a payment that is due. And Jesus took care of that payment. And it's just, just such a wonderful thing that he had such pity and love and kindness to relieve us from that payment of debt and so that we don't stand we don't stand before God in an unforgiven state to face judgment and just punishment for our sins Sam Storms uh, said Satan's power and authority and influence are strong only as long as the guilt of sin remains unforgiven but verse 17 says he made propitiation for the sins of his people. It meant, it meant that he, he satisfied or met every, every, every debt, every demand that our sins created was met by Jesus. He satisfied that fully. Colossians 3.13, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled out, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it all away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, including Satan himself, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So as this verse says, he destroyed the devil, or he destroyed the power of, the devil's power of death by releasing us from the debt of our sins, by releasing us from all condemnation for our sins. And that, and that disarmed the devil. That disarmed Satan. It took away his power over us to threaten us, to accuse us, to condemn us. So instead of death as it was under Satan's power, under the dominion of darkness. So instead of death being an open door to judgment in hell, for, the, for those who believe in Christ, death is an open door to paradise. Death is an open door to perfect health, to perfect happiness, to perfect communion with all the believers of all ages, and it's an open door to the presence of the Lord. Jesus told the dying thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Death, that very day, that very day, 
death was an open door for that man into paradise. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What a, what a promise. What a promise. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55 says, When the perishable, that's our human bodies, which are perishable, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, that's our new bodies, our resurrection bodies, and the mortal, which is us, we're very mortal, when the mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. All right? So he says, all right, when you die, basically, there's a saying that's going to come true. What is that saying? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so in, 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 in essence, when, when you die, um, you're going to say, or, or at least you're going you're to remember this saying. This saying is going to become true for you. You're going to say, you'll say to this terrible thing that we call death, you're going to say, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Death is an enemy, but it's a defeated enemy. And we are victorious over it in Christ. Uh, John Wesley once uh, said about his Methodist uh, believers, I, I, I don't remember the exact situation. I, I read somewhere where he was asked about one of the, what, are, what is one of the chief things that characterize the, the, the believers that are, that are in Methodism. And, and John Wesley replied, our people die happy. Uh, or in, it, it may have been our people die well. I've heard, heard it both ways. But anyway, ultimately, it was like, you know, this is, this is one thing that really characterizes people who know and love Jesus. I mean, they have such a, such a triumphant faith, such a confident faith in Jesus. Our people die well or our people die happy. And we die happy because we, we go to death not to experience the wrath and anger of God, but to experience the smile of God. We go to be received by our Father. We go to be received by our Father who has reconciled us to Himself and made us His own sons and daughters. And He will welcome us with joy and delight, as it says in Isaiah, as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride. You know, I don't know, when is a man happier in his whole life except on, his, on, his, on his, the day of his marriage, his wedding day? And he sees his bride in her, in her wedding dress. I mean, there's, there's just, that's a hap, probably the happiest day in a man's life, without a doubt. And it says that the Father re, re, will rejoice in us as a, as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride. That's, 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 that's pretty amazing to think that God would rejoice in us and will rejoice in us in that way. So those who belong to Jesus, we don't have to ignore death. We don't have to pretend that death will never come. We don't have to never talk about death. We don't have to shut our ears and close our eyes whenever the topic of death comes up. If, if we're confident in Christ, we need to have no fear of dying. In fact, 
In fact, the one thing we should be confident in is that Jesus Christ came to free us from that fear of dying, along with all our other fears. And so we're free to live out our our life in confidence and joy and optimism, uh, knowing that the best is yet to come, knowing that to die is gain, as Paul said. Paul said, hey, you know, to, for me to live is Christ. That's fantastic. To die is even better. It's gain. I mean, that was, that was, the, that was the kind of frame of mind, the kind of frame of heart with which he lived, lived, lived life. You, do, you, do you sense the kind of boldness and confidence, uh, kind of the triumphant faith in that? Uh, that, that kind of statement that, we're, that we are to have. It's just, hey, you know, to live today, it means Jesus. It means Christ living in me and through me and helping me. And to die is even better than that. So it just it creates a kind of spiritual optimism and hope that we are to have in life. That was interesting that I also read about John Wesley in, in his own last days. And he lived a very long life, up, up well into his late 80s, nearly 90 years old, I think, as I, if I recall that correctly. Uh, but anyway, up until his very, in his very own last days, uh, it was said that he wore, he wore his belief like a badge of holy triumph. I love that. And he repeated over and over and over, the best of all, God is with us. You know, but, but I love that statement. He wore his, his belief. He had su- such a confidence in Jesus. He wore his belief like a badge of holy triumph. I don't, I, that's how I'd like to die. I don't know how, if, if any of the rest of you want to die that way too. But it's just that, that's, 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 a, that's an a, a amazing approach that we can have uh, to death through Jesus. But Jesus did not only come to deal with our fear of death. He, he came to stand by our side here and now today as a merciful and faithful helper. Uh, okay, yes, we are going to die someday. We need to be prepared. We need to be, be able to face that with triumph. But we also have a life to live right now. We have problems to overcome today. We have painful things to get through right now. Uh, we, we battle temptations. We, we endure things that test our heart and our character nearly every day. And this passage teaches that Jesus is here to help us with all of that in a, in a merciful and kind and sympathetic way. And so I, I urge you to, to really believe that, to actually believe that. You know, th- these are not just sort of spiritual s- sayings that um, I urge us to really believe that. You can, you can live life with Jesus now. Uh, you can live with bold confidence in his very real and present help. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then it, it goes on, which we'll, I'll come to in a little bit, so that he could also, so that he could, he could give us help when we are tested and tempted. But he was, he, was, he was made like that so that he could relate to us in our weakness, so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. And again, as I said earlier, the high priest had to, had to identify with the people, to sympathize with their weaknesses. Um, otherwise, he could not be a sympathetic advocate 
for them. The high priest represented the people to God. He prayed for the people. He made sacrifices for the sins of the people. And so to Jesus, to be perfectly suited as our high priest, he had to become like us. And But the thing that I, I want to point out here from this verse is that Jesus did not come to make propitiation or make atonement for our sins in some mechanical or stoic or heartless way. He died for our sins with great sympathy and mercy for us. He was made like us in every way so that he might be, be become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, making propitiation for our sins, which he did through his death. In other words, he did that out of an act of great sympathy and mercy and love. Paul Paul did, did not say only that Jesus gave himself for me. He said Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And that's an important component of it. Justification is is there's a legal concept about justification, but it's not it's not only it got it's not like God just uh, uh, declared you not guilty uh, sort of in some sort of cold legalistic way. He, he did it out of he did it out of love. Jesus laid down his life as an expression of that faithful and merciful love for you. And, and that mercy and love did not stop at the cross. Um, it, it's not like Jesus loved you once a long time ago. He continues in that frame of mind and heart toward you today. We... We may picture him uh, being frustrated or disgusted with us, and I've, I've definitely felt that way at times before. Uh, but Hebrews reveals him to us as being so full of mercy and understanding of our weaknesses that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's, he's ready to help us in our trials and temptations. Verse 18, which is what verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or the word is actually the same for the word testing. So he's able to help us when, when we are tested in any way. Uh, and certainly when we are tempted, Jesus is able to come to our aid. Are you being tested today? Are you being tempted today in some, some way? Uh, tempted to be discouraged or to quit or to give up? Tempted to complain? tempted to whatever it might be, gossip, slander, whatever. Whatever you might be tempted to today, Jesus is able to come to your aid. And one of the best ways to deal with any test, any temptation, whether it be to lust or complain or fear or anger or gossip or to give up, is just to cry out, Jesus, come to my aid. He is able to give aid to those who are tempted. And if you hear your own child or your grandchild cry out, help me, you'd stop whatever you're doing and, and run to meet that need because you love them and you, you know what it's like to feel problems and pains and you know what it's like to, to feel that you need help. And so you, you, you come or rush to their aid to help them. And basically this passage is saying that Jesus has that same ready eagerness to help you. When you need help, Jesus has that same ready eagerness to help us in our times of testing and suffering and temptation. And when you turn to Jesus, you'll get two things for sure. 
you'll get a compassionate and merciful response, and you'll get help. You get real help because he came to help. So Jesus is there to help you make it through, to help you overcome in your time of suffering or testing or temptation. And the message of the book of Hebrews really is that, that we are to draw near to him. We are to take hold of his mercy and willingness to help. Um, and, and that's the, the larger message of the book of Hebrews. Do, do not shrink back from him who came to be such a great Savior. Do not drift away from him. Do not neglect such a great Savior. Do not neglect his salvation. This one who has left everything and come in such mercy and sympathy to become like us and to, to accomplish so much for us. Don't, don't neglect him. Don't neglect his help. But rather, uh, live with complete confidence in Jesus um, in whatever you're going through. One of the messages that, that I really passionately have on my heart for, for all believers, for myself, but for all believers, is, that, is, is to communicate somehow that believing in Jesus is entering into a present, real experience of living with Jesus right now, today. He is our merciful helper. He's promised our aid. And so go to him. Go to him every morning. Go, go to him each night. Go to him every morning and submit your life and your heart and your thoughts to him. Go to him every day and put your confidence in him. Trust him with all that's going on. And, you know, a lot of times, I did this morning, I, man, I start calling for help the moment I wake up. You know, I, I really do. I, just, I turn to Jesus and... Sometimes I, I feel like I need a lot of help when I first wake up. But, you know, I turn, turn to him as my helper for the day. And as I said earlier, I never get tired of experiencing Jesus. I never get tired of going to him to help me in my testings and trials and temptations. I never get tired of going to him asking for help and then, and then watching that come and feeling that come and experiencing um, the, the, the ever-present living Jesus living in me and with me and being my helper. So if, if, we, if we really understand who Jesus is and what he is like and what he's done for us, I, I, I tell you with all my heart, then we are fully prepared to live life with confidence today and we're also fully prepared to die without fear. I mean, it's a complete package. It's got everything covered. We're, we're fully prepared to live life. As long as we live, we're fully prepared to face death when that comes and to do all of it without fear and to do all of it with a sense of confidence that Jesus is with us and our help, helper. So really, you really are. You really are fully equipped for life and death. You just need to believe that today. And if you do, the more that you believe it, the more you'll have that kind of triumphant, confident faith that Wesley expressed. You'll have, just, just have the confident, uh, confident, triumphant faith that Paul expressed. For me to live as Christ, it dies even better. 
All right, let's, let's, let's stand and, and pray together here.